Who sang it? I dreamed a dream. Who? Uh, Joseph, yeah, yeah, but he didn't sing it, did he? Who sang it? I dreamed a dream in time gone by. Come on. Hey, Susan Boyle, Sue Boyle. So who said that? Susan Boyle, yep, well done, got it. I was expecting everybody to get that. And she did dream a dream, didn't she? Uh, she dreamt a dream that one day she could be maybe recognized. And against all the odds, it happened. A couple of years ago, in a New Year message, she wrote, Today is a very special day for me. Six years ago, I stepped onto the stage of uh, Britain's Got Talent in Glasgow with the hope of becoming a professional singer. Six years on, my dream is still going strong, and I can, can't quite believe all that has happened. Six albums, started my global tour, a biography, a movie role, to mention just a few of the incredible of life-changing moments that have happened in the past six years. Traveled the world, seen places that I never thought possible in my lifetime, and also managed to gain an incredible extended family around the world, my fans. who have supported me and loved me and shown kindness to me more than I deserve. I'm a very lucky lady and count my blessings every day. Recently, more recently, eight years on, at, uh, from um, in a recent newspaper article, I was, I was reading this here, um, after winning BGT, seeing her debut album top the chart, Susan brought Bought the four-bedroom ex-council house in Blackburn, in which she still lives, for £65,000. She also paid £300,000 for a brand-new five-bedroom house, but found it hard to settle in, so moved in her niece and moved back to her ex-council house. Singer has donated a lot of her fortune to charity. What is Susan Boyle's net worth? Singer's estimated... Uh, to have a net worth of 26 million pounds, but money isn't that important to the down-to-earth star. She still lives in the ex-council house in her hometown, and the most expensive item she owns is a 300-pound fur coat and a bottle of Chanel Number no. Five. Uh, that's how she handled success. And I love that uh, huge turnaround in her uh, her life a fulfillment of her dreams, and she's doing pretty well on it. But how would you do if all of a sudden things happen? Maybe you have had a dream, uh, a dream that someday one thing might happen, and actually the, you feel there may be some substance in that. You've maybe heard from God. It could be hearing about, you know, hearing from God about blessing in the church. It could be something that in your heart you've been seeking after and you have a sense that God is going to deliver on that one day. You've been praying towards it, but it hasn't happened yet. I wonder how you would actually handle it. How would we handle unexpected success? Never mind expected success. Because there's a lot of merit in handling things well, and we don't necessarily do that if we're not prepared. It's not uncommon for people to struggle with the experience of prosperity and success when we've been conditioned to things going wrong. It's a little bit like somebody getting on a bicycle. Uh, and yet you think, how do I handle this bicycle business? You don't know anything about centrifugal force as a kid. And all of a sudden, you think, hey, this thing's staying up here. Uh, you haven't actually thought about brakes. 
you're cycling going, you think this is, this is fantastic here, I didn't expect it, I could actually don't know anything about brakes, next minute you're on flat on the face on, 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 on the floor. And, I mean, I'm still learning the lesson. I've taken up trout fishing recently. And uh, there's a, a lock not very far, a reservoir not very far away from me. And, you know, it, it pays to expect success as well as failure because if you're not getting a fish on the end of that fly, you kind of get used to the idea and you think, I'm not going to catch anything. And all of a sudden, bang, some great big fish bites on the end, as it did uh, last week. A uh, lovely big trout, and I did everything right, and I played it, and then it ran off this way towards the weed bed, and I reeled it in, and I brought it in, and it was four-pound line. I had to be careful, and then I brought it right into the edge of the reservoir. And that, what a whopper. It was about three and a half pound. I thought, how do I get this thing out? My net is about 100 yards down the bank here. So I thought, I'll take a chance. And I, I tugged at it like this to pull it onto the bank. And what happened? My line snapped. So I thought, you're not getting away. So I dived at it. And I slipped. And I fell headlong into the reservoir. And Liz, I've never seen her laugh so much. But I'm still learning. I wasn't expecting to catch something, so I didn't have the net with me. Uh, and that's the mindset that we can get into. Handling success can be a learning curve. And we can end up actually sabotaging our success by our expectation of failure. If failure is all that we have known, we may even find it more tolerable to live with failure than experience the greater fear of losing the joy of success and successful living, and successful outcomes in life. There's something in, I'm an adopted Scot, by the way. Many Scots chose, uh, didn't have the choice, but I've chosen to be Scottish. So there you go. I've lived in Scotland more than, more than uh, uh, well, more years than anything else. And I've lived in East Kilbride longer than anywhere else uh, at all. So as far as I'm concerned, so I can tell you this about Scottish football. And incidentally, I support, sorry for any English people here, but I support Scotland against England in the rugby and in the football. Okay. <laughs> so I can tell you this about Scottish football. Talk about snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. I mean, you know, how often do you see your team playing and then it's all going great, it's all going brilliant. You think, no, this can't be happening. We don't win games. And all of a sudden, two or three goals are letting in the last five minutes. Uh, oh, Joe's dropping again. Uh, it just isn't working. But to have a win mentality, a confidence about actually living with success is really part of... Um, I think part of the Christian life, apart from life in general, as well as a part of life in general, and certainly we, could, we can expect, if we're praying for revival, if we're praying for spiritual blessing in the church, prepare for it. It's lovely to hear about your Bible class being too big for the room. Now, if you're expecting success, well, you're going to be ahead of the game and think, well, actually, when the Bible class gets too big for the space that we've got, we need a plan to actually get a bigger space rather than do play catch-up. But no, we don't actually expect things like that to happen, or do we? 
Well, we pray in faith that they might. And with Joseph, and we're coming to the Bible reading just now, um, things begin to turn around for him in his experience. So when God visits us with success and prosperity, we need to handle it in a godly way like Joseph did. Okay, Genesis 41. Uh, I'm going to skip a little bit because it's quite a long chapter. But here's the story. We'll uh, skip out to 17 to 24 because it's a repetition of the story. But uh, he's been in jail. He's been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He's been slammed up in prison. The butler and the baker, they join him in prison. They have dreams. He interprets the dreams for them. And the uh, poor baker gets impaled uh, in fulfillment with a dream of this uh, bread on a tray on his head and the birds are coming down and eating the bread and the butler is restored to his position. And Joseph has said to the butler, remember me to Pharaoh when you get out of here. And he forgets. It's about two years have gone by. Oh, it is two years, isn't it? Verse 41, two full years had passed. Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. The cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing up on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. And Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me with the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream that same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted for us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. He was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that you can hear a dream and can interpret it. I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So from verse 17 through to verse 24, he explains the two dreams to Joseph. And then we have from verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven good cows are seven years, and the seven, uh, the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. And seven lean and ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and, are the seven, uh, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east 
wind. They are seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about, what uh, he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. And all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it is so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food from all those, these good years that are coming up and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve in the, for the country to be used during the seven years of famine and that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one deserting as wise as you. You will be in charge of my palace and all the people are to submit to your orders only with respect to the throne. Well, I'd be greater than you. And we've got the account of here of how Pharaoh gives him his signet ring, puts it on Joseph's finger, he dresses him his robes of fine linen, a gold chain around his neck, uh, had him ride on the chariot as his second in command. The people shouted before him, make way. Thus, he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. What a turnaround in a short space of time between being in a prison and becoming second in charge in the whole of Egypt. Someone's asked me about dream interpretation. When you hear about people interpreting dreams, I suppose there are different types of dreams. There are maybe two basic types of dreams, ordinary dreams that we have in the, uh, the shallow sleep of waking hours that sometimes fit the day before. We can see the pattern and we can understand uh, the, the meaning of them. But there are other dreams specifically given by God. And the dream given to Pharaoh is a dream from God that is like a prophetic dream. It's got prophecy in it. It is a prophetic word. It is a word that conveys a deeper meaning. It is a warning about the future. It is not something that can be explained in any other way. It's not as though Pharaoh was eating cheese and crackers late at night and uh, was, wasn't um, sleeping very well, whatever it was. God had spoken to him. And this was now the turning point. Joseph's time and opportunity from God had arrived. Now imagine the mindset of Joseph. He's got a dream as a young man. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's lied about. He's put in prison, but he's still holding on to it in faith because he's sure that he's heard from God. And yet it seems that all of his circumstances are working against that. And that can happen to us. Because God has a time and waiting for that time, you know, the interim, the gap, when it isn't happening as quickly as we would like it to happen, all kind, that's a breeding ground for doubt, depression. Uh, 
But here, the timing of God has arrived. And God visits him with success, if you like. The dream is coming true. What can we learn from Joseph on how to handle prosperity and success or even spiritual blessing? First of all, I would say rest in the sovereign grace of God. That would be a wise approach to take. We can see the sovereignty of God at work in the whole of the life of Joseph. And it's humbling to see how the very best of human efforts can bring, well, can fail to bring success. It's not about human effort here. This is about the intervention of God. Joseph has asked the butler to remember him and he forgets. It's two years later, the circumstances change and uh, these arise with the dream of Pharaoh and he remembers. When God is going to do something in his sovereign grace and in his power, nothing will stop God from doing it. It's not a matter of bargaining. It's not a matter of working harder, though I think there's a, a lot to be said for making an effort towards something. Nothing will stop God if God has planned something and he will bring it to pass. And that's something to rest in. And you may have come into a place of prosperity. And I'm talking about financial prosperity, success in business. I don't know you as a congregation, so I'm speaking into a blank canvas here. Or, take notes, you may come into some kind of inheritance or blessing or unexpected prosperity, financial prosperity, and you've been living on a shoestring for so long. Uh, how are you going to handle it? Recognize that actually God has been at work and brought this about. But in the end, um, we're to rest in that. Uh, rest in the, in the confidence that God has, has uh, brought about change in his time. Okay. Then there's not just resting in the sovereign grace of God, there's exercising wisdom here. Joseph recognized the sovereignty of God in all of this, and we'll be coming on the final sermon on the, on the sovereignty of God, so I'm not going to stray into that territory at this point. But he exercises wisdom too. He's out of prison, he's given Pharaoh's signet ring, he's clothed in these robes, he's riding in this chariot, he's given an Egyptian wife, he has superior power and opportunity in a matter of days, a second in charge. What's he going to do with all of this? He's wise. How good are we at handling this uh, you know, kind of success? How wise would we be in situations like that when a turnaround has happened? You interview people who win the lottery and the kinds of answers that they give are very revealing of the kinds of characters that they are. Some people are simply very foolish and they, they follow a road that leads to destruction. But Joseph is wise from the start. It's clear that um, what Joseph said to Pharaoh was wise counsel. Set up this system whereby these years of plenty will provide in the years of famine. It's already beginning. He counsels Pharaoh 
in this way and he's given the job. Where do we find wisdom in the scriptures? We find wisdom in our relationship with God through Christ. Christ is made unto us wisdom, the scriptures say in the New Testament. But what is wisdom? There's a very moral element to wisdom. It's not just being clever sort of thing. Uh, it's actually uh, much more than that. The Proverbs, which are the books of wisdom, say such things as, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. A wonderful text. Guard your heart with all diligence, for it is the wellspring of life. And with the understanding of the orig origin of the word there, it's like the bees. You know, there's some around a beehive. There are guard bees. And you start poking around a beehive. Beware of the guard bees. They will go after you. And, you, you know, they'll guard the honey. It's that kind of guarding, the strength of, of guarding. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Make sure that, uh, God, with all diligence, make sure that in here, you don't, you don't, the seeds of corruption don't begin. Whether it is, you know, the adage, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. And it all begins with a little thought, a temptation. Guard your heart with all diligence, for it is the wellspring of life. You poison the, you poison the well, you poison the life, but everything flows from the source, the well, or the spring, as it were, the spring of water that comes up that is pure to begin with, but corrupt it in its source, and you corrupt the whole flow. It's what happens. And in a place of success and in, of material success and prosperity, guard the heart. Joseph guards the heart because we can see in the outcome of his life there's something noble, something godly, and something good. He's not vengeful when his brothers appear. And we'll come to that. Because I'm going to be looking at handling emotion like Joseph, as well as the sovereignty of God, but not this evening. He rests in the sovereign grace of God. He exercises wisdom. He keeps his integrity. There's no indication whatsoever that Joseph lost his integrity when given a position of power. The 19th century historian Baron Acton, the moralist Baron Acton, who is credited to have written, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. That's what you said. I don't want to get into politics, but I can think of one or two. Joseph probably had to swim against the tide of moral corruption. He would have entered into the world of politics. And anybody who enters into the world of politics, take the former leader of the Labour Party, caught in a dilemma with his particular Christian convictions and the way in which the media probed him in certain areas in order to make life particularly difficult for him until he couldn't stand the strain anymore and he stood down. 
politics and business are both shark-infested waters. Great pressure can be put upon people to compromise, but there's no sign of this with Joseph. Be a person of integrity and refuse to be corrupted by the culture or world of prosperity, be it business, politics, or anything else, when it is anything less than what you hold to be a strong Christian value. Prosperity theology. I'm not convinced by the teaching of those who promote what is become known as prosperity theology, that it's the will of God for every Christian to become rich, especially through the power of positive thinking or the power of positive speaking. Neither am I convinced that it is the will of God that every Christian should be poor and always seeking to make ends meet, scraping a living kind of from the dregs of life. My reading from the Bible, of the Bible, um, leads me to recognize that prosperity together with opportunity brings responsibility. Some people are wealthy all their lives. Some people are poor all their lives. Most of us experience sometimes when life, in life when we're worse off, sometimes when we're a bit better off. Uh, so did Paul. I know what it is, he says, Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And the Bible addresses both rich and poor in New Testament times. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. First Timothy 6, verse 17. James 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom of he promised those who love him? And although we may disagree with her, the idea of a prosperity theology that all Christians should become rich. I don't think we should overreact to that as, uh, as though all Christians should take vows of poverty like the Franciscans. And here, in the call of God, Joseph is prospered, but with a purpose. This isn't Joseph, I'm going to prosper you, so you're going to be wealthy and you won't have any worries. I'm giving you a responsibility. Wow, what a responsibility he had and how he fulfilled it. That's the purpose for becoming prospered by God financially. I'm not just speaking about the blessing of God here, spiritual blessing. I'm talking about financial prosperity. God gives us a responsibility with that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a wonderful scripture, isn't it? Something that Paul said. But we shouldn't confuse 
contentment, with resignation to poverty of circumstances or opportunities. If we sense that God has something better for you, then um, hopefully that will be a dream that comes true, that will lead you to opportunities to use what God gives you responsibly. There are examples of those in Scripture who asked for God's blessing. There's a spiritual blessing here. Elisha, who asked for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. Jacob, who wrestled with God and said, I will not let you go until you bless me, unless you bless me. And Jabez, 1 Chronicles 4, verses 9 to 10, of whom it said, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Actually, Jabez means pain. What a terrible name to give your child. But anyway, that was what it... Jabez cried out to God, the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. I like that. I mean, he's asking the earth. And God says, yeah, I'll give it you. Why not pray for it? He sensed that it was not right for him to live the rest of his life in pain. Sensed that things could be different. But he depended on God for this. God gave him what he asked for. Granted his request. And as for Joseph... The turning point came. He adjusted to his new circumstances and used this God-given opportunity for good. Don't allow the pain and disappointment of life to hold you back from what God may have for you. Press on into it. Don't be afraid to ask for a double portion of his spirit to ask for the blessing of God. The blessing of God may mean financial prosperity, and it may not, for the two are not necessarily linked together. But it can mean both. But as far as the blessing of God is concerned, wrestle with God until he blesses you. Ask God to bless you and to enlarge your territory, and then use the new opportunities that God gives you in a way that honors God. But do remember that we are dependent on God's sovereign grace for this. He has a plan, and he has a purpose, and he has an intention. Nothing's going to stop God from bringing that to fulfillment in your life, through your life. And if so, then rest in the grace that God has given to you. Amen. Jim, are you going to lead this song here and uh, I'll do the communion?